You're listening to Death of the Reader. Flex and Herds here for your murder mystery world tour, and we are here with a new novel. This time, it is Death Comes to Marlowe by Robert Thorogood, the second novel in the Marlowe Murder Club series, chapters 1 to 14. TV screenwriter Robert Thorogood, known for BBC's Death in Paradise. Herds, yeah. what more do I need to know? This is a story that fits into the sort of cosy murder mystery subgenre, mm-hmm. where we follow a, a couple of old ladies, three I should say a couple. I'm, I'm meaning three old ladies here. That's uh, Judith, our hero, and then Susie and Bex, who are the socioeconomically opposites of each other. Which is yes. just it leads to a lot of drama between them. But they're all they're all part of a big detective crew. Judith is also incredibly immature, <laughs> and uh, and she's curious about life, which I love. I love Judith. Oh, my goodness. I, I want to <laughs> say before we get started, there was a cynical wedge at the back of my oh brain no. that saw BBC screenwriter <laughs> Murder Club came out in 2021. Uh-huh. Was this a publishing agency grab to capitalize on the trend of the Thursday Murder Club by Richard Osmond? Well... The answer is maybe, but we'll let the book stand on its own merits. And can I say, I absolutely love this leading trio. Yeah, I mean, let's let's be clear. This this book, uh, Death Comes to Marlowe, came out this year in in January. Yes. But the first novel, you're right, came out around the time of, of Thursday Murder Club and that sort of uh, rise in trend of the the elderly detective, mm-hmm. and this novel is in some ways very different. I'll, I haven't quite finished my read of the first book yet, but th- there are some action sequences. Some th- th- there aren't explosions, but there might as well be. Uh-huh. You can hear the ticking of an explosive time bomb in the the BBC script that is the original story. <laughs> but I I think it's a, a good sign that the second novel is it's a bit more toned down, a bit closer to actually being cozy, let's say. The setup to this novel is that Judith, who is sort of our lead detective character, is called to Mm. the wedding wedding of Sir Peter Bailey, who's like a what's the term it's a it's a britishism I, a lord ba- baron baron set yeah, baron tech he's a baron and he is in charge of the bar- baronetcy of ah. uh, of his estate i believe it's just the bailey estate i don't think there's like a fancy name for it but yeah he lives in like a georgian mansion and he's carried, getting married to a lovely woman named jenny mm-hmm. and everything seems great at the party she's very nice except that she's lovely except that his son shows up and causes a, a row mm-hmm. and you've barely had time to pick up that that coffee that you've sat down with to you know read this book when there's a loud crash and the man is dead as Sir Peter is found dead almost immediately yeah he's got a pair of salmon trousers <laughs> sticking out from underneath a giant bookshelf like the wicked, wicked witch, witch of, of the east of style the of the weast the weast yeah the weast yeah it's it's great like this novel really doesn't mess about it is interested in being a classic murder mystery but it is really focused on just throwing a murder at you a quirky murder mystery and then just piling clue and clue um and interview with each all the witnesses like it wastes no time in setting it up as a locked room murder i mean in some ways it's almost too ruthlessly efficient because you say we go through the you know, interviews with the suspects, but the only suspects that we really get to hear from are the core cast of the novel, even though there's supposedly a lot more people at the party. Yeah. And 
I am completely okay with this. I like not having to juggle too many characters, but it definitely does laser focus the story in on a group that I think struggles to keep up with how good the leading trio are. I, I completely agree. Yeah. Judith is phenomenal. The opening scene of her flashing Ian Barnes and his children yes. after <laughs> having to evade an angry swan <laughs> while sw- swimming in the River Thames Naked. is phenomenal. Yeah. What a character introduction. Yeah, it's, it's if wild. you haven't read the first book, that is amazing. Yeah. Just, it's so good. <laughs> I want to talk about Bex um, because she's sort of the posh one of the group. Yeah. The, the three characters- play the the regular criminal roles of the brains, which is Judith, mm-hmm. the the heart or the muscle, which is Susie, and then the face, who is Bex. But she has an unusual knack for being able to sleuth through a kitchen and divine uh, exactly what, what meals have been made in that kitchen recently, where everything yeah. is kept, even when there's no indication of how the kitchen is organized. Like her special skill is around fashion, yes. right? Boots and kitchenettes wears and like colors as we'll see later on in the novel this is line where judith says to bex like you could do it you can solve this puzzle for us you're the most middle class woman ever <laughs> and it's like it, it's sort of a dig at her metatextually it's not really clear if it's sincere from judith well that's the thing J- judith is constantly like having a go at bex but bex doesn't seem to really understand that she's having a go and then yeah susie is over here doing the dumbest well, it's not only that she doesn't understand it she takes it well, yes. as a compliment either yes, way exactly they have that kind of friendship, right? And Susie is on the other side of the spectrum where they find these boot prints in the mud. And Judith says, okay, Susie, you've got to go and get the cops over here. They like, re- they have a repeated back to them. Like, Susie, tell me what you're going to tell yeah, the cops. What, what is it you are supposed to I'm tell them? I'm going to tell cops, them <laughs> that I was not looking for clues that I was just out here for a walk. And they're like, okay, good work, Susie. She comes back and says, so I was out here looking for clues. Oh, wait. <laughs> Like immediately fumbles, and it's, it's like it's perfect. She doesn't really care for the pretense. You could tell she's kind of got this wry smile where she's like, "Oh dear, yeah. what have I done?" Yeah, she she tries to save her her failures, but but it's too late. It, almost every time she appears in the novel so far, she's wearing a bright red jacket. Oh my the book is not subtle about the metaphor of her <laughs> sticking out like a sore thumb in amidst the like near black tie dress of everyone else at this wedding yeah, party. Yeah, she's fantastic. Um, and that is to say nothing, of course, of the uh, the the unofficial fourth amateur sleuth, who is uh, a police detective, and that's uh, Tanika. Amateur. <laughs> yeah, Tanika is really interesting because I I feel like she's the strongest of the extended cast, probably by virtue of her being a more familiar character from the previous book, but just structurally she isn't actually able to get up to terribly much other than just expressing frustration at the club. Yeah. She's clearly got a a sort of tenuous relationship with them because there's this whole back and forth where they say, well, obviously this was a murder. And she says, we're not in a murder mystery novel looks at camera. Yes. And like, I I won't tell you any of our information or let you investigate the crime scene. But of course they do anyway. And they give her all these different leads and things. This sort of relationship is, is, I think it's fairly typical. Yeah. What what is interesting about Tanika, and this is something that we'll we'll talk about as we go through the book, is that her previous superior officer Hopkins, I think his name is, comes comes back just at the moment that she's had this uh, this case, you know, put under her jurisdiction, yeah. which is like a big case for her. It's like one of the leading people of the village. Absolutely, and it's a very strange coincidence. There's a question sort of hanging in the air as to whether Hopkins is here to steal the glory from her or to hush up the thing. Because it's, 
you know, it's about this this guy, this Peter Bailey guy who everybody knows. Mm-hmm. Like if he's in on it, like we don't know. But clearly there's uh there's tension in the police force and seeing how Tanika kind of deals with that is is really fun. And it's also very interesting the way that Tanika both completely distrusts but also has great faith in Judith, Bex, and Susie. Like her frustration comes from the fact that she knows that they're probably right, but that she can't work with them because they're yeah. not official. She has she has great respect for them, right? But they don't have the badge. Yeah. So there's like this moment where Judith says, "Oh, this 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 death is suspicious." And in your conventional murder mystery, the cops would go, "Oh, that's ridiculous! You silly old codger, get on out of here." <laughs> Whereas Tanika goes, "Well, Judith is probably right, but I need to figure out how to actually prove it." And then her superior officer shows up and she's like, well, now I don't care. Let them at it. And there's this moment where the the rest of the cast is sort of let free from under the very loose grasp of Tanika. And it's it's really fun. Yeah. And there's there's something really, really clever going on here, too, because this this idea of, you know, you're amateur sleuths and you're probably right because you're the detectives in a detective novel. That's something that mm-hmm. the the reader understands. We understand that if there's someone who's died in a murder mystery, they were probably killed by someone. That's that's yeah a safe assumption. But in the real world, that's not how it works. There's due process and you need to have physical evidence and confessions and recordings of things. And so uh, what, what Robert's kind of leaning on here is the idea that if three amateur sleuths just wanted to solve a, a, a real murder mystery, like it would be very difficult to have them heard in a court of law. It's something that they would have to yes. struggle against. And that struggle, because th- this is a very, a very gendered novel. It's, it's written by, by Robert, a man, but like, it's about, mm-hmm. it's about these three women and it's focused on this woman cop. And like all of the women in this novel are pushing against forces that say, you know, you can't tell us, what the truth is and like you can't tell us what you want that's what this story is is using that initial setup for mm. that that setup of like the detective pushing against reality is being paired with the idea of of, of gender like oppression yes. right <laughs> which is really cool and that i think is also one of the reasons that some of the rest of the cast fall a bit flat for me because for example jenny it feels like the commentary on the role of women sort of disappears with Jenny, yeah. which may be an intentional thing as like she's a suspect and it's kind of getting you to question her character. But on the other hand, it's also a bit like, well, there's just this weird edge of like improper professional relationships <laughs> where I'm like, yeah, uh, the, just the message is it, definitely a bit it, muddy. Yes. Um, yeah. I, th- I think I would, I would agree with that assessment, but like, I, I think that, uh, I have faith that Robert, much in the same way that he's toned down the ridiculousness from the first novel, he's going to to find his feet, as it were. But yes, you're right. Jenny as a victim, but also an extremely uh, Im- improper nurse. There, there's some mixed messaging going on there. And, you know, characters are nuanced, but... Uh, we have themes in this book. Yeah, and it's the sort of thing <laughs> where, as, as you were sort of alluding to there, and I just want to, like, I guess, clarify my interpretation in case I've taken you the wrong way, is that Jenny sticking out in that way where she doesn't fit the sort of gendered theme of the novel mm. is something that the book can explore. Oh, and for sure. my sticking point can then become something that's, like, genuinely interesting about the book, but it still ex- it feels like a concern to me. At yeah, the no, that's fair enough. And, I mean, 
we are only in the first third of the novel. We still have plenty of discussions and interrogations and confessions to go through before we see the full shape of things. And I, I think that'll that'll sway us one way or the other. You did mention Beck's superpower earlier on, and I just really wanted to establish that <laughs> the scene where Bex identifies where the olive oil is. Yes, is phenomenal. It's it's hilarious. <laughs> I was so blown away by how completely and utterly ridiculous it is, but how much it feels like every character in the novel is just completely okay and in agreement with yeah. what's going on. They, they all agree. It's bizarre. And the energy of Beck's like crouching down and looking like a spy over the top of these kitchen counters. And she's like, oh, it's made of corn, which is a, like a fake marble where the knife marks will damage the bench. And you can see the discoloration here. It, it's uh, it's uh, it's just so absurd. Can I tell you what that that sequence instantly made me think of the olive oil in the in the kitchen? Yes, uh, is is Miss Marple? Like obviously, it reminded me of that novel, which is all about how the the woman detective detects womanly clues, and that was mm. you know considered progressive at the time. And in this novel, we're we're taking that same concept of like what are these weird details that only these old ladies would would notice, and we're cranking it up to 11 so it's 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 kind of a parody in a way yeah but it's it's beautiful i do want to talk a little bit about the miss marple thing in the mystery section yeah i think i think so, so. i think i think we should wrap this here and come back and talk about the puzzle uh -oh. later on in the show this is death of the reader your murder mystery world tour here on 2ser 107.3 we are talking robert thurgood's death comes to marlow chapters 1 to 14 stick around more to come on your murder mystery world tour You're listening to Death of the Reader. Flex and Herds here for your Murder Mystery World Tour. And hey, we oh. wish you were here as a 2SER subscriber. Yeah, we wish you were here. We wish that you would exist in our lives, in the subscription life of 2SER 107.3. It's been about six months since Radiothon when we last checked in with you. And we just wanted to see if you're doing all right. We miss you. Yeah. And it'd be fantastic if you were to sign up as a 2SER subscriber. It helps keep the lights on, keeps us producing sounds and ideas for Sydney that you love. And we have a whole bunch of prizes from some amazing Sydney businesses to give you a little incentive to join the family at this time of year. Yeah, there's a lot of cool stuff on offer. There's a lot of beer. There's a lot of alcohol. I love it already. My goodness. If you want to find out more, head to the 2SER website, 2SER.com, and there'll be a little pop-up that'll greet you when you arrive and just follow the prompts. It'll be great to have you join the 2SER family. We want to hear your voice. We wish you were here. Now, you can, of course, subscribe at any time of year to 2SER, but if you subscribe before April 30th, you put yourself in the running for those prizes, as well as the usual subscription goodies, including T-shirts, tote bags, bumper stickers, and if you're a small business, a discount on your first on-air campaign with 2SER so that small businesses here in Sydney can help support each other because we love that community energy both the individual level with you listening all the way up to the businesses that you run, work at, and make this city so great. Mm -hmm. We're going to jump back into Death Comes to Marlow by Robert Thurgood in just a second. Stick with us. This is your Murder Mystery World Tour here on 2SER 107.3. You're listening to Death of the Reader. Flex and Herds here for your Murder Mystery World Tour. We are discussing chapters 1 to 14 of Robert Thurgood's Death Comes to Marlow. I am in the seat of peril. The hot seat. Before we wrapped up 
the first section of the show today, Herds, you were talking about Miss Marple and the womanly detectives detecting womanly clues. Mm-hmm. And I just wanted to say, I was a little perplexed by Uh-oh. Judith's equivalent to this. What do you mean? What is what is the clue you're referring to? In Miss Marple. <laughs> yes. In the tomes of Christy heritage. We, we see her use glances. We see her use body language to indicate that she has noticed ah. something is wrong. I think I see where this is going. Yes, yes. I was a, I was a little concerned mm. when the first mention of Judith detecting something awry in her crossword puzzle is us being told explicitly Judith felt something was awry in her crossword puzzle. Mm. And I thought to myself, oh dear, <laughs> <laughs> perhaps, perhaps this mystery is about to be a little too on the nose. Yeah, I mean- can I tell you that I look, I'm not going to say anything about this mystery because I think that you'll have more than enough to say yourself. But uh, that was a part of the criticism that I found online around the first book that perhaps there was a bit too much uh, tell don't show mm. involved in the novel. I will not comment on the amount of tell don't show in this novel, but I do think that that's a good example of a moment where, as you say, uh, Robert could have been a little bit more subtle. I wonder if it comes like I God, I don't I don't want to get too far down the path of psychoanalyzing authors because Look, we're only a third of the way through the Even though the book. even though we've done a lot of it over the course of the show, I grew progressively more distasteful of it. <laughs> but I do sort of wonder, at least if they're still alive. <laughs> I do sort of wonder if it comes from the screenwriting thing where putting in a line like that in a script would cue the actor to do something that would insinuate that with body language, mm. whereas doing it in a written text doesn't provide the same nuance. Yeah, I, I definitely found while reading this book, there are a lot of scenes which felt very like like a show. Like I could imagine the actors moving through the space and- Which is not a bad thing no, for the of record. Not. There's a lot of scenes that really have a great atmosphere on account of this. Now I have to ask- <laughs> Uh-huh. <laughs> I feel like you could have a pretty good crack at, at what the real murder is, but but I would like to offer you the, the opportunity to earn one of your three points oh, for, oh for, for, for through a little experiment here. Mm-hmm. So what I want you to do, because there are a number of suspects in this novel, many of them part of the family of, of yeah, Peter yeah. Bailey. I mean, you might say all of them part of the family. Mm-hmm. Because uh, they're the only characters that are introduced before the body is found. I would say exactly that. That's that's my original thought. You might say that, which narrows it down to like three people. But anyway, Tr- Tristram, he is a character of constant suspicion. I would say that he's the most likely uh, on the surface of it to to be the killer. I would love for you to to give to me uh, what you think is the bad joke answer of Tristram's murder of his father and if you're oh, hold on ben what? before we get too far because this is gonna this is gonna bother what? me later What's, on i don't understand is his is his name trist tristam or tristram tristram isn't it hold on wait what do you mean my book my book says tristam well so i i've got the ebook here and i've just typed in yeah tristam and i only see two mentions of tristam wait and they're both in chapter 27 <laughs> it's, it's both hold on hold on it's- yeah it has both <laughs> well, well okay to be very clear, there are two mentions in my book of Tristan. Every single other mention is Tristram. Every other one. What is happening? That's that's bizarre. bizarre. <laughs> uh, okay, uh, Tristram. Tristram. Uh, Tristram. Tristram. 
<laughs> Sorry, I just... <laughs> yeah, well, the interesting thing is that in the true murder mystery sense, right, he <laughs> is the only character that has an alibi with the detective for the murder mm-hmm. in that the crash happens while he is having a conversation with Judith and Susie. Yeah, so, so to be clear, what I want you to do is to not just provide me a, an answer, but if your answer is the same as the one that is going to be proposed later in the book... Uh, I will grant you the point. That's really hard. I know it is. If you can't pick it, I will still assess you based on the regular solving of the mystery. You may still earn your yeah. full points. Oh, my god! But gosh. if you can just throw out a theory and be like, Tris Tanaram did it, <laughs> and this is how, and it lines up with the theory that we're going to be given a little bit later, because it runs through the entire book. There is one Tristanaram theory that just- keeps coming back to haunt me. I like that your solution is to add syllables <laughs> to the name where mine would be to remove. Tris? I mean, yeah, yeah that would make, or just Tam. <laughs> if you can pick that theory, then you get a point. Here's what I think happened. Because we know that Peter was afraid for his life based on a conversation that he'd had with Tris. Yes. And Tris. my assumption is that this fear is genuine because of the phone call that Peter Bailey makes to Judith to get her there in the first place. Mm-hmm. And my assumption- A very real assumption. No fake. Is that as the patriarch of the family, he was, you know, did, did the typical thing that murder mystery patriarchs do where they change their will at the last minute, right? The person who did it out of the will and they get upset about it and then the will goes missing so we can't find out about blah, 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 blah. Mm-hmm. Very, very standard murder mystery play. Now, here's what I think happened. Clearly, there was a trap involved in killing Peter Bailey mm. because he has this giant bookshelf full on top of him. The only person that realistically would have done it in this mandated Triss solution mm, is Triss. Okay. But he has an alibi. He does. And he couldn't I have killed him. The, the the thing that I wonder is that he wouldn't have had time to go in and set it up mm. because he is outside the mansion the entire time that we see him. Yes. And he shows up in a loud car, which means that the only time he could have done it is before he first appears on screen, which means that the book doesn't even give us a time frame in which he could have appeared. Also, to be very clear, the the sort of setup to this to this murder is that it is a locked room murder. Um, the the door to the the study is found locked, and when they bust open the door, Tris busts open the door with a fire extinguisher, which is pretty cool. They find the key to the door inside the murder victim's pocket, and he's been like, and there is no possible way that there is another key. So it is a proper, yeah. honest to God, locked room mystery. Here's the thing that I think happened. I think that Tris was there earlier, mm-hmm. basically showed up where people couldn't see him and he went in to set up the trap. Okay, what what is the trap? The trap is probably magnesium tape holding a teetering bookshelf. Oh my goodness. Uh, that, was, that was meant to burn or break at some point because that's one of the other clues we have presented is an empty jar of magnesium tape. Mm, it's true. And there's like a hook that holds the thing to the wall, but it like is presented as being further away from the wall than it should be to be held up by that hook. Okay. Uh, and clearly the police have like repositioned it where they thought it was when it fell. So it was too far away from the thing holding it up. So I think the tape was like closing that gap. Okay. I think Tris came in earlier, mm. set it up, and then left. Right. And I reckon Jenny saw him do this. Okay. Jenny, the innocent one. Yeah. Jenny, the nice girl. Yeah, nice girl. And Tris runs off. He he comes back in the car to the whole show of showing up to establish his alibi. Uh, and at some point, Jenny tells Peter uh, about what they happened because they have that like showdown in the garden. Jenny shows up in the middle of that. 
uh, and I reckon that she tells him to go and check to see what Tristan was doing in his office. Mm. And I don't think that the trap was finished. I think he he left in a rush, and in trying to figure out what his son did in his office, he accidentally broke the magnesium tape and had the thing fall wow. on himself. So, it's in- so I reckon it's a case of dramatic irony mm. uh, in the sense that the the preparation for the murder wasn't actually finished until Peter went to try and fix it for himself because of his very nice fiance. So wait, you think that he accidentally ripped or, or burned a bunch of magnesium tape? Like that's- Probably, probably, probably burned. I reckon, I don't know. What kind of an idiot would be like, there's a cupboard leading from the wall and there's some magnesium tape tied to it? Well, I mean, maybe he went behind it with like a candle or something <laughs> to see what was back there and okay. it, it lit the thing. And he goes, oh, oh, goodness, there's magnesium tape. And he, he, well, we would just see something bright. He'd like, oh, God, there's something blinding. So he comes around the other side and he stands in front of the bookshelf to like gather himself because he's basically just flashbanged himself. Okay. And then while he's standing there. He stumbles around in the dark and and, and he just happens to be where the, the, the shelf is when it, when it falls. Yeah, exactly. That is an incredible coincidence. I, I wouldn't mm-hmm. pray that in a court of law. And that is neither would I. And that is not even there is not even an intentional intentional murder. I can't believe exactly you've, pr- you've proposed. So Tristram's going to get off, and they're going to have to find another way to get him. How are they going to get him? <laughs> you don't have to answer that, but <laughs> presumably for tax fraud. Okay, sure, that all makes sense to me. That's why the will's missing. So your your answer to like the 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 bad joke theory as to how Tris killed his dad yes. is that it was an accident is what I'm hearing. He was sort it of- It was an accident on purpose. He was sort of going to kill him, but not really. He failed to kill him and in failing succeeded. It makes sense to me. Okay, cool. I'm glad to have heard your theory. Jenny had nothing to do with it. She didn't even once put the key back into the pocket of those salmon Shush trousers. You. No, that's a that's a different theory. Shush you. What different theory? <laughs> what? Next week on the show? That has nothing to do with just tram. That has nothing to do with- <laughs> I just- I know that if I am pronouncing that word, I should be saying Tristram, but like, I just like Tristram. It's just more fun. It, it it sticks out like a sore thumb in the same way that Tris definitely does as a suspect. He is the, the clearly the most suspicious. And as we know, the most suspicious okay. character is always let's, the one that I know, ends right? up doing it. Let's, let's pivot a little bit because there's another character who is in the house who we do not know the whereabouts of at the time of the murder. And I'm shocked that you haven't even suggested her involvement in this at all. And that's, that's Rosanna. Who's Rosanna? I know who Rosanna is, but who is Rosanna? She's a very well-to-do lady who wears a stern face just as she wears her trim, well-put-together jacket, except that there's a button missing. She runs the estate, which is clearly coming back to the whole gender roles thing, but it's been very off-screen, and we find her coat button in the bottom of- A wardrobe. The the couple's wardrobe. Yes, which is Which strange. means she was probably spying on someone that was in there, but who and why? Mm, it's a very shady thing to be doing, spying on someone. I mean, look- It is a very shady thing to be doing. You say that she's- been been doing nothing, but maybe she was committing a murder. Have you ever stopped to consider such a thing? Yep. Good. And and then I stopped. <laughs> I can't believe that you just brush her away. This is you're gonna look like you have egg on your face at the end of all this. I, when, yeah, no, I'm gonna have a big, one, big old omelet she's on my a face. Big delicious omelet, and you'll be eating it and having a great time. But I'll be laughing yes. because you'll have lost. That's the yeah, loser omelette. You'll be eating that omelette off my yes. face with a knife and fork and gouging my flesh in the process. Sounds, I mean, that could be worse because it's like how you pair eggs and bacon, except now it's omelette and face. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, I, I guess I've had enough of you 
for now. I don't know if there's anything else you wanted to add to your amazing theory. Oh, actually, any thoughts about the crossword business? We should mention we should mention the other mysteries. We should mention the crossword business because yeah. that is Judith's one defining character trait. She has no other mm-hmm. qualities. She's the crossword setter. I mean, clearly the crossword setter of Judith's newspaper, the the Marlowe Daily or whatever it is, is 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 meeting up with a people or a person. My assumption is that it is going to parallel the trick. Interesting. The trick is clearly that there are two <laughs> characters or Kill more me. meeting up to coordinate a thing, and there is some language through which they are doing this like a crossword. And I think Judith is going to see that, and that is going to unveil to her the, the trick of how they did it. But I'm not sure what crossword Zeta and the culprit have explicitly in common in this regard just that they have that thing in common you know you know what though i think that theory holds a lot of water because you know we already have two characters that are clearly communicating in secret in a manner much like that of a crossword because you know what a crossword is it's a game you play with words yes what better game for tristan and tristram to play with each other (laughs) (laughs) okay 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 i'm done with that bit now Let's move on. This is Death of the Reader. Uh, Your Murder Mystery World Tour. Herds, what are we covering <laughs> next week on the show? Uh, Flex, we'll be covering from chapter, was it 15? Up to chapter th- uh, 15 to 32. It's going to be great. Hope you're ready for some some lost loves to rear their, their heads. It's going to be good. Well, thank you for joining us for this first episode on Robert Thorogood's Death Comes to Marlow. We'll be back chapters 15 to 32 next week on the show stay tuned here on 2ser 107.3 we'll be back with more sounds and ideas for sydney and beyond next week catch you around see ya